Hi, Naclistas. Helen here with a quick announcement before we play today's episode. So, Nakla Radio is now available on iTunes. This means that you can subscribe via the podcast app, and new episodes will automatically download to your phone, your computer, or tablet as soon as they go up online. We are so excited to be more accessible, and I really hope that you'll rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes because that makes it easier for other people to find the show. All right, let's play the episode. And welcome to Nakla Radio. I'm your host, Helen Hazelwood Isaac, and I'm joined today by Marisol Lebron, a contributor to the fall issue of the Nakla Report. So this issue of the report is called Prisons, Punishment, and Policing in the Americas. And uh, Marisol's article for the report is about how policing and surveillance programs in Puerto Rico have historically been used by not just the federal U.S. government, but also Puerto Rican elites to suppress dissent and maintain a particular sort of colonial power structure. So Marisol takes us from before the rise of Puerto Rico's first elected governor, Luis Munoz Marin, and his party, the Popular Democratic Party, which was in 1949, all the way up to the more more recent policies of Pedro Rosselló, who served as governor of Puerto Rico until 2000, and also the recent controversy um, last year around the Puerto Rico Day Parade in New York City. So today, we're going to discuss the article and some of its major takeaways, but we're also, of course, going to talk about Hurricane Maria, about how Puerto Rico's debt crisis has appeared in media coverage and narratives about the hurricane, and, and how this dynamic that Marisol digs into in the article might kind of play out as the recovery efforts continue there. Uh, Marisol, how are you? I'm doing doing all right, considering uh, everything mm-hmm. that's going on in Puerto Rico right now. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Great. We're so glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so maybe we can start uh, just by, let's see, could you um, tell us just a little bit about yourself, about the work that you're doing right now? Um, I know that you're currently working on a book about um, policing in Puerto Rico. Um, and then also just uh, maybe what your thoughts were going into this article. And, and you know, it's been a, a few months, I think, since you've um, had to look at it because of the delay in publishing um, timelines. So, so maybe w- how you're thinking about it now, um, you know, in the context of recent events or just in general. Yeah. So the, the piece I wrote for NACLA really does grow out of my book, uh, project. So I'm working on a book right now called, um, Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence and Resistance in Puerto Rico. And what I'm really looking at in the book is how policing functions as a structure in Puerto Rico. And what I mean by that is how policing really influences um, social relations on the island in, in really unexpected ways. And in particular, how it functions as a tool for crisis management, for shaping ideas about race and class, about social positioning, um, spatial, spatial positioning on the island. Um, so those are some some issues that I think come through in, in the piece that I wrote for NACLA is is really how policing becomes this um, tool for creating um, the Puerto Rican public in, in many respects. Right. And, and really um, trying to deal with some of these um uh, legitimacy crises that, that, uh, come up in the political arena, but also as a tool for dealing with economic crisis. And that's particularly what we see, um, really 
in the kind of post-Commonwealth period um, after the 1970s when, you know, Operation Bootstrap is uh, not producing, you know, is basically a distant memory for, for many Puerto Ricans in terms of um, kind of uh, social mobility and prosperity. Uh, and, and we see kind of unemployment on the rise and, and various kinds of uh, forms of economic crisis. You know, policing really comes in to... Um, you know, suture together uh, some of some of these uh, ruptures within Puerto Rican society that that result from that kind of um, economic crisis by dealing with excess populations, reinforcing the idea of certain populations, particularly um, poor folks and Black folks in Puerto Rico, as um, problematic for the nation and part of why um, Puerto Rico is not able to, um, advance, right? Um, so it really function, policing in many ways functions in this ideological way for shifting responsibility onto, um, some of the most vulnerable individuals within Puerto Rican society and, and kind of pointing the finger at them, um, and, and saying that, you know, this, this is the problem. This is the problem in contemporary Puerto Rico, right? Not colonialism, not a failed um, development model, um, but really it, 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 they try to blame kind of cultural deficiencies, right? Or racial, uh, racial deficiencies and, and things like that. So we really see this kind of um, really pernicious, but very familiar um, rhetoric play out uh, in Puerto Rico and in, in the contemporary period. Right. Yeah. I mean, the article definitely does a really great job of teasing out how um, division within the independence movement, within really any group that might otherwise um, have a, a kind of credible subversive claim um, was kind of like the the ultimate, if not the like self-conscious goal of these FBI and um, Puerto Rican Commonwealth government collaborations. The um, There's a system that you look at where the Puerto Rican police collaborated with the FBI with Cointel Pro, the counterintelligence program, um, to develop these carpetas, these folders on um, subversives, so-called okay. subversives, um, people who they they being either the FBI or, or the Puerto Rican government had identified as threats. Um, but it's, they cast quite a wide net. Um, and it's interesting that you point to how like these narratives of kind of deficiency amongst in particular a poorer, blacker segment of the population are kind of laid into this police work as a means of explaining Puerto Rico's failure and on a certain kind of um, relative scale, uh, when in fact it is kind of this colonial dynamic, um, that's, that's causing these kind of economic crises. So, I mean, if, if this system of surveillance and of policing and incarceration, um, and you also note a lot of extrajudicial violence, um, in Puerto Rico, if that's the way that the, the government there and the U.S. government have historically responded to ruptures or crises. Um, I wonder how, um, we can imagine sort of moving past, um, the divisions that that kind of policing creates and then also how that kind of plays into, um, the structures that we see elsewhere in Latin America and in, you point out, you know, the connection between kind of testing policing mechanisms on Puerto Ricans and then implementing them in urban spaces in the United States. Um, so, you know, the, the ultimate example would be the war on drugs. 
so I guess what I'm wondering is, um, what, like, what more does this really show us about, um, how these policies and these, um, programs of policing get built? Um, and if Puerto Rico's kind of ground zero or like the testing ground for this sort of police structure, um, should that then be ground zero for the movement against police brutality, against this kind of, um, counterinsurgent surveillance? All right. I think that's a, a great question. And I think it's a really tough one. It's one that I struggle with myself and my, in my own work and, and that I try to, um, you know, unpack a little in the book, because I think on the one hand, we have to be really careful not to exceptionalize what is happening in Puerto Rico. Right. And I think that it's very clear in which, um, the ways in which many of these policies that we're talking about, um, whether it be kind of anti-policing the, the independence movement or, um, you know, Puerto Rico's version of the war on drugs, I think it's really, um, we have to be careful not to only attribute everything to the colonial relationship, right? I think the colonial relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico obviously plays a huge role in how um, those mechanisms of policing unfold on the island and, and how they, what kind of local iterations they take. But, you know, in many ways, Puerto Rico is um, part of a kind of policy circuit. I think that's what I tried to point to in, in the NACLA piece. Um, and something I point to in the book is, you know, the kind of policies that are happening in Puerto Rico are, are not being created in this colonial vacuum, right? They're part of a set of best practices that are circulating around how to deal with unrest and how to deal with crisis, right? And so I think there are particular local iterations that we see, right, or, or spins on these best practices. So, one of the examples that I look at in the piece is um, the gag law, um, which is, you know, really a, a variant on uh, the Smith Act, but in many ways, right, is 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 goes far beyond the reach of the Smith Act. In many ways, um, is targeting different populations, right? Um, although there's, you know, the Smith Act is is kind of the the red scare kind of communist hunting. Um, uh, act, right? And, and, you know, while there's a conflation between communism and the independence movement in Puerto Rico, right? It's really serving that, you know, the gag law in Puerto Rico is really more concerned with temporarily immobilizing the, the pro-independence party in order to facilitate the emergence of the Commonwealth or really consolidate the emergence of the Commonwealth agreement between the U.S. and Puerto Rico by making uh, the independence movement seem disorganized, small, not allowing them to be, you know, free and on the streets to vote, right? Um, so they have these really different iterations and spins, right? But, um, you know, so I think it's, I think it's this, it's this really unique kind of case where, you know, I think what happens in Puerto Rico in many ways speaks to much larger global trends, right? And I think the things that, um, are happening in the past 20 years speak to um, concerns about mass incarceration and um, disproportionate racialized policing that are happening um, throughout the world in many respects, right? Or the securitization of um, urban landscapes, right? So, um, you know, 
parts of Puerto Rico look like Southern California in terms of how many gated communities there are, right? And and the kind of racial divisions are equally stark as as um, you would see in in a place like Southern California, right, or Sao Paulo, right? And so I think that these global, you know, Puerto Rico is part of the world, right? And I think you know we internalize this notion that it's an island and it's somehow cut off, right? And it's this kind of very unique space, but in many ways, um, you know, it's part of the world and part of these global trends. Um, but there are kind of really unique examples that Puerto Rico does give us in terms of how we can kind of understand how colonialism is, um, it's kind of endurance and, and, and the ways in which it manifests in the present moment in ways that are quite unexpected. And they also intersect with some of these larger global trends, right? So, how does colonialism intersect with neo neoliberalism or with kind of the growth of securitization or racialized policing, right? I think that Puerto Rico provides us something really special in terms of a space to examine those dynamics. I'm 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 drawn to this part in the article where you where you point to the way that um these carpeteos, these this this filing system um for keeping track of subversives ended up kind of following uh, Puerto Ricans who left Puerto Rico uh, for the United States. Um, and the, and then the, you know, local um, law enforcement agencies were using this information that was supplied to them by the PRPD uh, to keep track of people and to continue harassing them or surveilling them um, to varying extents. Um, so there's, I mean, there's a question of like, I guess what's come up in the, in the media narrative around the storm too is this either the, the lack of questioning about the fact that while Irma and Harvey received much well-deserved attention, um, following these hurricanes that struck, uh, predominantly Texas, Louisiana and, and Florida, uh, our president, um, and many others have remained curiously quiet um in a relative sense about puerto rico um and at the same time we're receiving a lot less information from puerto rico now because of the um failure of the communication system and, and the electric grid um following the storm so i mean i guess what i'm wondering is um the what your sense of um you know as someone who grew up also in New York, what your sense of the kind of strengths and also the, the, the disadvantages of a largely diasporic community, um, are in, in times of crisis, um, both economic and also, you know, these, this, this confluence of human and, and natural disaster. Um, and then also, uh, you know, how the, how this debt crisis that preexists the storm has, has played into, um, narratives about Puerto Rico coming from U.S. media, um, as well as politicians and leaders. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot there. So I'll, I'll try and kind of break it up a little bit. You know, I think in terms of, um, connecting back to the piece, I, I think the, the kind of, um, examples that you highlighted from, from the article, right? I think, one of the things that I found in my research right, is that although I'm writing a book about how policing takes place in Puerto Rico, right, I've also ended up um, writing a lot about the diaspora in some surprising ways, right? And so I think that, um, you know, in terms of thinking about the, the practice of policing as it relates to Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans, right, really has to include how those dynamics um, 
play out on the diaspora as well as between the diaspora and Puerto Rico. So, you know, the example you gave is, is a really great one where, you know, um, there's concern with anti-independence organizing um, in Puerto Rico um, that, you know, causes the, the, the surveillance and kind of harassment is so intense that it forces people to leave and go into exile to join the diaspora um, and, and try to escape some of that. And then they find just as much um, repression in the mainland U.S. At, um, under the COINTELPRO program, right? So um, we see a collaboration between local and federal law enforcement that really is aimed at suppressing um, radical movements, radical Puerto Rican movements, whether they be in Puerto Rico or in the diaspora. Um, so in a sense, that kind of criminalization um, really can be something that brings Puerto Rico and the diaspora together in some really interesting ways. And I think that, you know, we've seen moments where where that plays out, where that shared sense of um, criminalization or concern about criminalization really brings the, the diaspora and the island together. And I think COINTELPRO and Carpeteo, uh, the Carpetas, end up being one of those kind of moments where those uh, radicals on, uh, in Puerto Rico as well as on the mainland are really encountering similar um, practices and similar forms of harassment by sometimes the same, but sometimes different kind of um, arms of law enforcement. Um, you know, another kind of example, though, is that uh, that sense of criminalization can really... Um, or the way that policing takes place, right, can also really create this division between Puerto Ricans and the diaspora and Puerto Ricans and, and, and Puerto Rico, right? And so one thing that um, I talk about in the larger project and, and that plays out in really interesting ways is um, the way this kind of rhetoric about a crime wave in Puerto Rico um, pits the diaspora and uh, and Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico against each other in really interesting and surprising ways. So, um, you know, you'll see kind of uh, resentment um, at some moments and you see this around kind of anti-violence um, social media campaigns around kind of discussing violence in Puerto Rico where Puerto Ricans who are in Puerto Rico uh, will, you know, really chastise people for leaving, right? And I think you see this play out with the, Yo, yo no me quito campaign, right? About like people who leave for the diaspora are, are quitters. Um, they're, they're part of the problem because they're not willing to, um, stay and do the, do the necessary work. And so in terms of crime, it, this comes out where people feel scared and abandoned, right? That are kind of have decided not to migrate or don't have the means to migrate. Um, they feel trapped, right? And so you see that tension really arising between um, Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico and, and Puerto Ricans in the diaspora, whereas um, Puerto Ricans in the diaspora are extremely concerned about what's happening in Puerto Rico and trying to figure out how they can um, help to address issues of violence. Um, and, and we see social media as a space where that kind of work uh, gets done a kind of sense of collaborative work across um, this this distance right but I think that it also highlights some of these really um, intense tensions uh, that play out uh, between between these different kind of um, sectors of, of the Puerto Rican community and as well if we think also about how 
the diaspora has also been criminalized by Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico, right? And so uh, when we see a huge surge of crime in the 1980s, um, one of the blame or one of the causes uh, that people point to is the return migrants, right, that are coming back from places like New York and Philadelphia and Hartford. And, you know, that was really about, you know, race and class and, and dealing with race and class dynamics in Puerto Rico and in terms of how Puerto Ricans are their race and class was reconstituted in many ways when they entered the diaspora where they're in close proximity to um, African-Americans, they're living in low-income communities. And so when they come back, they're seen as bringing those racial problems and that poverty and that culture of poverty back with them, right? And so they're seen as really um, contributing to the crime problem and, um, and, and really contaminating uh, uh, Puerto Rico um, as returned migrants in, in really interesting ways. So I think, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a lot of really incredible potential for solidarity um, when we think about policing as a site um, that kind of unite or yeah, think about policing as a site that kind of brings uh, uh, Puerto Rico and the diaspora together. But it's also a site where we see a lot of these tensions that are already there within Puerto Rican society um, play out um, between between Puerto Rico and the diaspora as well. Um, and, and so your other question, though, was about kind of the diaspora and the hurricane, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, so I mean, I, I, like I'm still waiting to hear from my family. I spoke to my family last Tuesday. I've been, you know, trying to contact them. Uh, I'm calling like a hundred times a day, trying WhatsApp, Zello, every, everything, right? And so it's, it's really stressful. And I think, you know, there's a sense of real uh, panic and, and fear uh, for loved ones um, that's permeating the diaspora. But I also think there's like a sense of intense anger and rage and frustration within the diaspora and this feeling of um, being confronted with truths we already know, right? <laughs> and really having those kind of confirm um, as we see this crisis play out around Hurricane Maria, where, you know, um, I think many of us know that Puerto Ricans and in, in many, um, whether they're in Puerto Rico or in the diaspora, in many ways are um, subjected to a kind of second class citizenship. And I think moments like this really make that real, right? And I think um, moments where you're like, how is it possible that 3.5 million people who are under U.S. jurisdiction, um, nobody is fussed that like 80 percent of people don't have or, you know, kind of without the means of communication. Um, many people are left without clean drinking water, um, have raw sewage kind of um, within, uh, you know, within their homes and communities. Uh and are probably not going to have power for four to six months. And I think that was something that, you know, we had heard that kind of stuff before the hurricane. And, and you know, my stepmom works for the electric authority. And when I spoke to them, when I spoke to her right before the hurricane hit, she was just like, this is going to ruin us. We're not going to have power for six months. And I, I, I thought it was like, okay, that's like the worst case scenario. And it turns out it didn't really take much to to leave the island completely plunged in, in, into darkness, right? And I think that's a really scary realization for those of us, and it really intensifies um, that anger and that sense of helplessness um, that, that that a lot of people are 
are feeling right now. And, and I can only imagine, um, you know, we're feeling that from really privileged positions, right? Like I'm in my air conditioned office, um, with, uh, my lights on and talking on Skype. Right. And so, yeah. it, um, you know, on the one hand we're confronted with this, but we're not, you know, we, we, we can't even begin to kind of imagine the horrors that people are experiencing right now. Even people who are kind of relatively well off, I think, um, are also kind of um, experiencing this hurricane in, in kind of really intense ways. Although, of course, we know that, um, you know, low income communities, um, rural communities and, and, and uh, immigrant communities, black communities in Puerto Rico are experiencing this worse because of years and decades of um, infrastructural neglect and, 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 and government institutionalized um, neglect and, and discrimination against those communities. Um, so, you know, I think everyone's hit hard, but we know who's kind of hit hardest in this. And I think that that's, um, you know, the diaspora, I think, has really come through in terms of seeing some of those inequalities Um that exists in Puerto Rico and trying to figure out around fundraising issues, how to address that. So I, I was um, thrilled to kind of see the massive support among uh, many friends and colleagues in the diaspora um, for Taller Salud, which is actually an organization that I worked with um, or that I, you know, I interviewed folks with there from there and the, that I discussed in the book. Um, there is a feminist public health organization in Loisa um, that is just, doing amazing work and, and is really going to be active, I think, and necessary in, in, in hurricane relief efforts in, in Luisa, which is a predominantly uh, black, low-income community in, in, in Puerto Rico. So um, I think people are trying to figure out how do we get funding to more rural parts of Puerto Rico, to the island municipalities of Culebra and Vieques, right, which are even more cut off in many ways, right? So we talk about you know, this island, be, it's a, you know, Trump is like, oh, it's an island surrounded by water, massive amounts of water and all this kind of stuff uh, um, as if it had never occurred to him. But, you know, <laughs> we're still focusing on, I think, the main, you know, landmass of Puerto Rico and really also forgetting about these island municipalities, which are so much more vulnerable and um, have so many more environmental concerns. Um in terms of what this is going to do about all the contaminants that are already there, right? And all the infrastructural deficiencies that already existed way before the storm. So I think these are all concerns that, um, as I think we wait to establish contact with uh, loved ones and, and friends and, and with the with Puerto Ricans there, um, we're trying to figure out what we can do to kind of pitch in and, and, and do our part, um, especially when, it's, you know, travel there is impossible. Communication is, is quite difficult. So, um, so I'm heartened by kind of the response, uh, that, that I've seen and, and I feel, uh, you know, solidarity with everyone who's just super frustrated and pissed off. And, um, I'm hoping that that kind of results in some kind of action, you know, like maybe repealing the Jones Act or, uh, putting a moratorium on the debt. That would be fantastic. So.
Yeah, just for listeners who aren't aware, in in the smallest nutshell, I can I can manage the Jones Act <laughs> makes it so that uh, foreign flag ships aren't able to deliver goods to Puerto Rico. So if a ship was built in Mexico, in Greece, um, in Canada, uh, it's not right. allowed to land in a Puerto Rican port. This was an act that was passed in what it was forty six, nineteen twenty. So it's twenty protectionist. Okay. It's essentially yeah. a protectionist law to deal with, uh, I think, German U-boats uh, after World War One. Right. But I and, mean, it's effectively made it so that Puerto Ricans are paying a premium for any right. goods that arrive on the island. And this premium goes towards subsidizing the U.S. shipbuilding industry, um, which is a big part of the reason that Puerto Rico is so in debt in the first place. Right. Um, and it's a big part of why the... the um, cost of living uh, in Puerto Rico and Vieques and Culebra is so high. Um, but I also wanted to, to just emphasize um, what you said about fundraising. Um, we are going to include some links to fundraising campaigns in the show notes for listeners who want to contribute. Um, for listeners who are in the New York City area, we're also going to include some resources for you. Um, and just, I, I wanted to highlight what, what you said about kind of policies and, and the truths that you know, Puerto Ricans in the diaspora and in Puerto Rico already kind of know to varying extents and experience to varying extents. But the, you know, there's this inclination to say that during, especially I think natural disasters, but even maybe economic ones, um, health crises, that, that these kind of crises are the moments where like state infrastructure or policy breaks down. But I mean, I think what we're seeing here is really, and this has been discussed in, in terms of Katrina, in terms of the way that, uh, Houston's municipal management structure, um, in many ways was a contributing factor to how bad, uh, the aftermath of that storm was. I mean, we see, in these crises also the 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 um, extreme manifestation of state policies um, both Puerto Rican Commonwealth policies and also the United States federal policies um, and then on a, on a maybe a less um, clear-cut uh, level we see the the racial inequalities and the economic inequalities that play out on the ground and in people's individual experiences of the storm um, on how long it takes for them to get power how long it takes for them to contact their loved ones outside of the um, of the zone um, so we'll be, you know, watching closely to see how this plays out. Um, and of course, providing listeners, um, with resources to get involved, um, in whatever way they can. Uh, is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? Um, maybe about where, where you'll be looking in terms of policing specifically as you, as you finish your book. Um, but I mean, I don't want to press you because obviously right now we're just going to be looking <laughs> at the power grid and waiting yeah. for, for communications well, yeah. to get back up. Yeah. I mean, I think that some things just for, for folks to kind of keep an eye on, I think are these questions of how the infrastructure gets rebuilt, right? Particularly, um, given the debt crisis and Puerto Rico's colonial status in relationship to the U.S. Um, you know, I think that people really have to, and again, I think that the lessons we learned after Katrina are extremely, um, you know, informative. Um, and, and foreshadow, I think, um, unfortunately, some of the kind of inequalities and, and um, forms of uneven um, re- kind of recovery that are going to take place in Puerto Rico. But I think one of the things for folks to watch out uh, is for kind of widespread privatization efforts um, on the island. And this is something that the Fiscal Control Board, the Junta, uh, that is now in charge of Puerto Rico's um, finances as, as a result of the PROMESA Act 
Um, they've been pushing for this since before, uh, these hurricanes. Uh, so we have members of the junta who have penned, um, op-eds calling for, um, PREPA for the electric authority to be, um, privatized. Um, and you know, this is really the strategy behind this, um, the, the kind of strategy that they're employing to justify this is that basically Puerto Ricans don't know how to manage their own um, resources, right? And they don't know how to manage their own infrastructure. And this is why the infrastructure is so bad. Not that we've been in austerity mode, uh, you know, since at least 2008 and much before, right? People would argue that this kind of recession um, and crisis, it has uh, really been... <laughs> You know, you can point back to 1973 as a moment where we start to see a lot of these economic shifts that have really come to, uh, you know, to, to fruition today. So I think that that's one thing that, you know, I think folks should watch out for is really these these attempts at widespread um, privatization. I think these attempts have been pushed in Puerto Rico for quite some time um, in terms of privatizing transportation, for instance. So the Lancha to um, Vieques to mainland Puerto Rico, they've been trying to privatize that for years and, and citing inefficiencies as the reason. Um, and as well as the electrical power grid. So I think these are just things for people to, to watch out for. Um, in terms of policing, I think one place for folks to, to kind of look, um, is really the kind of fight around the dumping of toxic coal ash. Um, in Puerto Rico, that's been a really, for me, someplace really interesting where I see, um, how policing is, um, functioning to, um, kind of, manage this crisis, right, or, or play a role in how this crisis is dealt with, right? So uh, the company a uh, AES, right, is, uh, is yeah, kind of so. uh, dumping toxic coal ash in, in, in these communities in southern Puerto Rico. And um, there's been a fight against it. Um, and, and you see these kind of mounds that are like five stories high of ash. So for instance, uh, before the hurricane, uh, the government had told AES that they had to uh, cover the coal ash or then go flying everywhere, get kind of uh, in, leach into the ground with the rain. Um, and they didn't. And so we were going to have massive environmental toxicity and, and, and issues to kind of worry about post post Maria. But even before the hurricane, um you know, the Puerto Rican police were acting as escorts to from the coal fire plant um, to escort the ashes into this community, which is a kind of low income community, predominantly black community um, in southern Puerto Rico named uh, called Panuelas. And um, what we see really is this way in which policing produces violence and myriad forms in Puerto Rico. Right. So we can think about police brutality in really concrete ways, um, when police beat people, shoot people, um, expose people to kind of physical vulnerabilities. But I think that this is another moment where we have to be really aware of how um, policing produces proximity and vulnerability to harm um, in ways that are not so obvious. So what does it mean for police to protect the private company and facilitate their ability to dump um, toxic coal ashes, right, that a community is actively resisting? Um, so I think that those are two things that, you know, post um, post hurricane for folks to um, to to be mindful of. So, you know, is this once transportation is reestablished that coal ash is going to keep moving? Right. Despite how devastated um, 
these uh, uh, these communities are um, and 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 the, the amount of toxicity that's just uh, that they've experienced as a result of the hurricane and, and the toxic coal ash kind of flying everywhere and leaching into the ground. Um, so these are th- I think are things that, that that we really really just have to kind of keep an eye on, and I think it's it's hard for us in the mainland to do that because there's. Uh, zero kind of coverage of Puerto Rico most of the time. Um, but, you know, the, the, the information is, is out there and, and, um, yeah. Marisol, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is great. That was Marisol Lebron, Assistant Professor of American Studies at Dickinson College, and this has been NACLA Radio. Marisol's article for the NACLA Report is available to read in its entirety for free on NACLA.org. If you haven't subscribed to the report yet, you can also do that on the website. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We are also on the web at facebook.com slash NACLA and on Twitter at NACLA. NACLA Radio is produced by me. Our managing editor is Laura Weiss, and our music is by Radio Jarocho. Los plumajes nuevos, cantos del monte, los plumajes nuevos, cocos.